Costume Drama Rewind. I'm Laura Skog. And I'm Megan Chet. And today we're moving from Mel Gibson single-handedly winning the American Revolution across the pond to an overlapping period of time and another kind of revolution. Also, Bannister Tarleton, best name ever, is back. And he's still pretty terrible. This movie was made in 2006 and it stars Ewan Griffith, Benedict Cumberbatch, Albert Finney, Rufus Sewell, Ramala Garai, and Michael Gambon. First, a quick synopsis. Like at least a few great historical films, this one begins in Medius Race. William Wilberforce has failed in the great fight of his life to end the British slave trade, and he's attempting to recover with a quiet rest in the country. Surprise! His best friend, Henry Thornton, who is also his cousin and his political ally, is conspiring to set him up with the lovely young Barbara Spooner, who is as passionate a reformer as Wilberforce himself. His story is told to Barbara in a series of flashbacks as he experiences a religious conversion, becomes committed to banning the British slave trade, enters the government of his good friend William Pitt, assembles a petition approximately as long as the Houses of Parliament itself, proposes his bill, encounters stiff opposition from Bannister Tarleton, Best name ever. and totally, utterly fails to get his bill through Parliament. He tells his story, marries Barbara, gets a good kick in the pants from her, and with renewed commitment, heads back to London to begin the fight anew. Surrounded by a coalition that fights with one another about strategies and methods, quite as often as they do anything else, Wilberforce manages to sneak through a neutral-sounding bill that will bankrupt the slavers before they realize what's happening. Tarleton figures it out nearly in time to throw the vote in the film's one moment of real suspense, but he's foiled because Lord Charles Fox, as played by Albus Dumbledore, has sent everyone off to a day at the races. Eventually, the slave trade is banned in England, and Wilberforce settles down to a long life of reforming zeal on everything from free public education to animal cruelty, while also having approximately one zillion children with Barbara. Okay, let's get to our first impressions. So I'm going to put my cards on the table. I pretty much bullied Laura into doing this movie for our second episode because I love it so much. Do y'all know how you can love a movie so much that it becomes part of your personality? That's me with Amazing Grace and with William Wilberforce. Once in Westminster Abbey, I got very politely told off by guard because I kept backtracking off the tour route to stand in front of Wilberforce's monument in amazement. My apologies to all the Abbey staff who are surely listening to this podcast. But shockingly, despite the fact that it features the internet's boyfriend, Benedict Cumberbatch, not that many people have seen or even heard of this little movie, and I've made it my obligation to remedy that. Well, I had heard of this movie for a while, and I'd always meant to get around to watching it, just like every other TV show and movie in existence. But my primary interest in watching was that my first celebrity crush on a real person who isn't some dead guy from the 1700s was Ewan Griffith, who plays Wilberforce. I first saw him in Horatio Hornblower, and he's still just as beautiful in this movie. But also, I became interested in Pitt the Younger when I read Terry Deary's Gorgeous Georgians in the Horrible History series when I was in 8th grade. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. Early in the movie, Benedict Cumberbatch's William Pitt borrows a famous quote from the play Henry IV, Part 1, asking Wilberforce if he wants, quote, bloody noses and cracked crowns. He describes it as a play about England changing, which is interesting to examine in the light of this movie. If you're not familiar with the play... Henry IV has already usurped the throne from his cousin Richard II, and he's facing his own stiff opposition from his nobles, most notably from one Henry Percy, known as Henry Hotspur, my pick for best name ever, the heir to the earldom of Northumberland, and the fellow who once said bloody noses and cracked crowns. The whole play ends with the death of Hotspur, but what it's really about is England shedding its old feudal loyalties and vesting their loyalty instead in a united national crown a process that happened much earlier in England than it did elsewhere, but still later than people tend to think. 
I think in this movie, we also get a look at how old loyalties and systems were breaking down in England, not just the system of slavery, which is, of course, important, but also the beginning of the end of the political supremacy of the aristocracy and its replacement with the British merchant class, as typified by folks like William Wilberforce. And while Wilberforce is the hero and prime mover of this film, it's worth noting that his work was supported by a crew of other reformers who do not get nearly the screen time here that their contributions deserve. The little clique of reformers that coalesced around the British abolitionist movement were known as the Clapham Sect, which gets a couple of blink-and-you'll-miss-it references in the movie, and which takes its name from the South London borough of Clapham, where many of them chose to live. One of the leading lights of the, ha- of the Clapham Sect was Henry Thornton, who in the movie primarily functions as Wilberforce's wingman, but who was a man of great principle himself. He once withdrew from a race for a seat in Parliament when he learned it was the local custom to bribe each and every voter with a payment of two guineas. He was also the financial brain behind the English abolitionist movement and an accomplished economist. Meanwhile, the member of parliament, James Stephen, was, as we get to see only briefly, really the legal mastermind behind the campaign to abolish the British slave trade. Incidentally, he's also the great-grandfather of Virginia Woolf. You also get a brief look at Hannah Moore, who, in addition to her work in the abolitionist abolitionist movement, was a blue-stocking poet, playwright, pamphleteer on religion and theology, education reformer, and all-around really cool and fascinating lady. While we're talking about the heroes of this film, I want to highlight Olada Equiano, who, notably in a film all about the slave trade, is the only black character with lines. He's a really interesting guy, and I wish we had gotten more play from him. He published his autobiography, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Alada Aquiano or Gustavus Vasa the African, with the support of the Clapham sect, and this impacted the British public's view on slavery. In it, he says that he was born in what's now Nigeria, kidnapped and sold into slavery, and shipped to Barbados, and eventually America. He continued to be bought and sold, shipped to the UK, and back to the Caribbean. And finally, a Quaker merchant who bought him let him earn money so he could buy his freedom, And after several more travels for his work as a merchant, he settled in the UK, wrote this autobiography, and became an outspoken abolitionist. He was also known as Gustavus Vasa, and that's how we learned about him in sixth grade. As the film briefly mentions, there are many who argued he was actually born in South Carolina, and I'll post some information on the website uh, that's written about historians who have continued this debate. And finally, he ended up marrying a white British woman named Susanna. I haven't been able to find much research yet about how the Equiano's contemporaries treated them, so please email us if you know more about this. Additionally, to get historical context for what's going on in this movie, we should look at something that most people find mind-numbingly boring, but actually is really important for the road to ending the slave trade, and that's insurance. Whee! So in 1781, the leaders on board a British slaving vessel, the Zong, threw over a hundred enslaved women, men, and children into the sea after a navigational error in sailing to Jamaica supposedly caused them to run dangerously low on drinking water. When the ship's owners tried to cash in on their insurance policies, the British insurers refused, and in the final resulting court case, Gregson v. Gilbert, the Lord Chief Justice, the Earl of Mansfield, ruled that the insurers weren't liable for payment because the drinkable rainfall that occurred after the Zong Massacre began meant that the continued murder of the enslaved people was unjustifiable. Many of the people in this movie, such as Equiano, Clarkson, Ramsey, and Newton, publicized the massacre, and some of the first rules and regulations over the slave trade were passed before the action in this movie began. A recent article by Fortune magazine discussing the massacre notes that the famous insurance firm Lloyd's of London issued an apology last month for its involvement in maintaining the slave trade. 
This apology, as well as Black Lives Matter's protesters throwing the statue of Edward Colston, a prominent slaver, into Bristol Harbor, are just a few examples of how we're still tied to historic events from over 200 years ago. So let's talk a little bit about their antagonists in the film. Wilberforce's two main opponents throughout the film are the Duke of Clarence, who is actually the third son of George III, and as such, would eventually be known to the world as King William IV, the last of the Hanoverian kings. He often gets treated kindly in film as Queen Victoria's sweet, doddering old uncle from whom she inherits the throne, but all of the remarks that the film attributes to him about slavery as a positive good are taken from his speeches, and he was one of the colonial slave system's most vocal defenders, particularly in his youths. The same case with Tarleton. Best name ever. Unlike in The Patriot, which obviously and as discussed invents some of his crimes out of whole cloth, Tarleton, as the MP for the port city of Liverpool, was known for working hard to preserve the slave system, as well as for freely taunting and mocking those in the abolitionist movement. So, in essence, this movie is about how painfully miserable the legislative process really is, isn't it? But also, it shows how politics interact with idealism. For example, because of the war with France, anything about equal rights, democracy, etc. gets seen as being too French and too revolutionary. And for that reason, a lot of Wilberforce's circle were viewed by, with suspicion by their contemporaries, though Clarkson's trip to France, which is depicted briefly in the movie, was actually undertaken at Wilberforce's request, not because either of them were infected with any general revolutionary fever, as far as we can tell, but the point of that trip was to simply to see if the new French government would be open to taking steps with regard to slavery. So let's talk about one of the minor but important characters in the film. John Newton is already somewhat familiar even to American audiences as the man who gave us the hymn Amazing Grace, and a lot of people also know that he wrote it following a conversion experience after years spent as the captain of a slave ship. This is a true story, though, like much of history, it's a little bit more complicated than is often depicted. Newton's transformation from slaver to abolitionist took place over a number of decades, and he didn't live quite the monastic ex existence depicted in the film. He was actually a very popular and well-liked preacher, so much so that one of his churches had to add a gallery to accommodate all of the people who came to hear his preaching. He was, in fact, and as depicted, a mentor to Wilberforce, though that relationship didn't begin until Wilberforce was already an adult and sitting in Parliament. It's a fun detail that Newton's scenes are shot at the Church of St. Bartholomew the Great in the city of London, which is the city's oldest extant parish church, founded in the year 1123, and it gets used very frequently as a filming location, particularly for historical films, so we'll see it again. So now, the big question. How many hats? I'll go with four out of five powdered wigs this time. So legislation is admittedly not the most exciting of film topics, the Guardian gave the movie an A- for historical accuracy and a C- for how entertaining they found it. Slander. But I really like the cast, especially Ewan Griffith. Uh, the amount of historical details given, I appreciate. And I really like the fact that this movie came out in time for the vote's bicentennial. So I was and remain a devoted West Wing fan, so I clearly do find legislative battles to be a very exciting topic. Um, and it's probably really early in the podcast to do this, uh, but I really want to give five powdered wigs to this film, just on the strength of its wonderful and potent and incredibly timely script, its spot-on casting, the beauty of David Arnold's score, which you can look for on Spotify and is one of the loveliest film scores I've ever heard, and the accuracy in the story settings, outfit, and themes. 
I was unsure whether it was too early, but in fact, I have fully talked myself into it, and I award this film five powdered wigs. Before we end the episode, let's go through our sundry others. Throughout the film, Wilberforce is depicted as suffering from ulcerative colitis, uh, which both he and historians attribute largely to the stress of his fight over Parliament. He first exhibits the disease in 1788, or about the time he's first working to move his bill through, and he took opiates for more than 40 years to manage the pain of the disease, and sadly was never really able to be without them. Speaking of physical ailments, Pitt the Younger famously died in 1806 from the stress of being prime minister and from his all-nighters spent working and drinking port so i appreciated the makeup they put on him for the movie to look like red gin blossom spots that alcoholics get his last words were either my country oh how i leave my country or more pragmatically i think i could eat one of bellamy's meat pies which is also a splendid quote the Brooks Club, where the whole crowd goes to gamble early in the movie, and where William Pitt smashes a glass on the ground is real, and it's still in existence, and I've walked by it before. It was founded in 1764, and it really was famous for its gambling tables, and all the guys in the movie, Fox, Pitt the Younger, Wilberforce, Duke of Clarence, were all members. The membership list is basically a who's who of the 18th century. And the Wedgwood medallions that Barbara mentions were immensely popular, the image of them is often shown in a lot of history books. It has an enslaved man kneeling with the caption, Am I not a man and a brother? And this Josiah Wedgwood is the same guy whose factory still puts out porcelain table settings. You've probably seen their signature blue and white pieces. The freely made sugar signs were also real. So finally, in this episode, we'd like to introduce a running informal tally we'll be keeping of which actors pop up often in other historical films that we watch. In no small part because of its sheer Britishness, we have a few this time around. There's Jeremy Swift, best known as the Dowager Countess's lovable butler Spratt in Downton Abbey. Benedict Cumberbatch, who gets a lot of play in war films, whether we're talking about World Wars I and II or the Wars of the Roses. Romola Garai shows up in a number of period pieces. And finally, there's Rufus Sewell, who I always feel like has a 90% chance of being in any historical film I watch, and we'll be keeping an eye to see whether that's actually accurate. We have a few book recommendations. Check out Equiano's autobiography, which we'll link to in the show notes on our website. There's also a great book about Hannah Moore called Fierce Convictions that I would highly recommend to learn more about this little-known but fascinating and frankly badass woman. Our thanks go out to everyone who's listened to our trailer and first episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us your ratings and reviews, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell your friends about us. Join us next week as we head further back into history, and perhaps slightly off the map, as we review A Knight's Tale. <laughs>